Rich DeVinney is a retired Navy SEAL team commander, but he went on to write a book called The Attributes, which talks about all of the different mental skill sets that make a Navy SEAL, or anyone for that matter, really perform at their best. We dive into all of that in this podcast. It's a great conversation with an amazing guy. This week's episode is brought to you by Higher Dose. Higherdose.com, promo code AMP75, by Plunge, thecoldplunge.com, by Onnit, onnit.com slash Aubrey for 10% off everything. There are things that are revealed in the most challenging situations in the world, and that's why the Navy SEALs have this kind of mythic allure to our culture, because we understand that not only is their training some of the most intense things that any human being goes through, but obviously their service is as well, and their training matches their service. So when people look to Navy SEALs, they look to, okay, how do they do it? You know, what makes a Navy SEAL capable of all of these incredible feats? And Rich DeVinney was like, all right, I'm gonna show you, I'm gonna tell you, I'm gonna write it out in a book and I'm gonna talk about all of the things that make our elite operators perform at their best because those are the same things that are gonna make us perform at our best. So everything that he learned in the SEAL teams and as a leader, he shares. And we get to dive into all of these different rabbit holes to really help everybody level up their mindset, mental training, and all of the different concepts that can help bring you to your highest potential. Enjoy this podcast with SEAL Team Commander Rich Devinney. But before we get started, a word from our sponsors. First up, we have Higher Dose. Now, Higher Dose has some pretty incredible tech that they're making available for home use. So they have basically a pad that you can lay out, lay out on the ground like it is in my living room, or lay it out on a massage table or lay it out on a bed. And in this pad, this pad that is layered with different crystals, different structures, that pushes both infrared and pulse electromagnetic field through the pad. Now, this is something that if you haven't experienced it, it doesn't mean much to you. But let me just tell you what it feels like when you're on there. It feels kind of warm and it feels kind of relaxing at first, but the longer you stay on it, the more you start to feel this lightness and this euphoria and this deep relaxation come over you. And it's something that you might not notice right away, but as you lie there, as you allow the infrared and you allow the pulse electromagnetic field to work, you'll start to feel significant changes. Great for a meditation practice, great for taking those midday naps, great for a journey if you wanna go on a journey on the mat. There's also a lot of benefits to both infrared and the PEMF, so I encourage you guys to check it out. Go to higherdose.com, use the promo code AMP75 to save $75. And really though, this is something that's worth trying if you're able to. Higherdose.com, promo code AMP, 75 to save $75 off. Next up, we have the cold plunge. So as any of you who have read my book, Own the Day, Own Your Life, know the cold plunge or cold shower practice is essential for my human optimization, really foundation. It's a way that I can optimize to level up both my physical body with the stress response, with the cortisol response, with the optimization of your hormone regulation that can happen while you dive and submerge into the cold. But it's also a way for me to practice mental override, for me to get myself 
to push past that initial resistance says, ah, it's too cold. I don't want to get in. And then you get in and all the benefits start to accrue. And I become a different person at the end of the cold plunge than I was at the beginning of the cold plunge. And every successive time that I do it, I just get a little bit better in all of those categories. So one of the times that I was posting this on Instagram, one of the people watching was the cold plunge that makes the absolute most elegant and best cold plunge I've seen on the market. And I was busy diving into my converted chest freezer and they were like, hey, we got a solution that's way better. Let us show you what this thing is all about. And I'm so glad that they did because not only is this tub the most aesthetically pleasing tub I've seen, it has all of the built-in cooling, filtration, and sanitation to give you a stable temperature with circulating water in a sexy-ass tub. And it's also way cheaper than a lot of the other options out there, some of which still use ice. Like you have to import ice and get more ice and dump it in. And that's cool. It's fun to be kind of floating around in the ice. But this is the elegant solution that actually has everything comprehensively built in. And it's easy to get set up. You just fill it up with a hose and you can use a filter on your hose as well if you want to filter out anything that's in the tap water. And you just have a pristine cold plunge tub that looks great and is available 24-7 for your cold plunge practice. So I encourage you guys to check it out, not only for the benefits to your mitochondria and all the physical benefits, but also the benefits to your mind for that willingness to push past any resistance that you might have, train that mental override, train that willpower, and just check out their tub. If you're able to, this is one of the biggest things that I can recommend to really level up your practice across all levels. So go to thecoldplunge.com slash pages slash amp use the code amp for 111 dollars off and just check it out thecoldplunge.com slash pages slash amp use the code amp for 111 dollars off and share it when you dive in when you get in there share your experience we'll talk about it i'll be diving in so let's do this together let's all get a little bit better together lastly we have on it a lot of people think that on it started with alpha brain and in a lot of ways it did that was the first product that carried the flag of what Onnit was going to become, but there was another formula that actually started a little bit before that, and that was the base formula behind New Mood. The idea was that if you've been stressing yourself out, whether that's your partying or through working or through doing something that's more than you should and not sleeping enough, like myself and many of us, you're going to want to help balance your serotonin in your body. That's the neurotransmitter that's responsible for a lot of the aspects of mood and just how good you feel when you wake up and go through the rest of the day. You're also gonna wanna relax yourself and actually take off some of that load. There's so many ways that you can get yourself up, alpha brain being one of them. That's going to support acetylcholine in your brain, which is going to help with mental focus and clarity and memory. But really, most of us have the hardest time relaxing and getting down because you can always drink some coffee and you can do some things to get yourself a little bit more focused but now that's not gonna be the same as alpha brain, but at least you can get kind of there. But what can you do to relax? What do you do to restore yourself as you sleep? And that was one of the first needs that I saw, and that was the basis of the new mood formula. It has L-tryptophan and 5-HTP, which helps support the serotonin and melatonin systems in the body. Then it has a host of other different herbs and nutrients that are really gonna help support you in relaxing and calming yourself, so you can, ah, chill. 
So if you haven't tried it yet, please check it out. It's one of our best formulas. And it's something that I take regularly, if not every single night. So go to onit.com slash Aubrey, save yourself some money and check out the new mood. And now an uninterrupted podcast with Rich Devinney. Rich, it's good to have you here, brother. Thank you, Aubrey. Really awesome to be here. So thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure. So there's a lot of different ground that you cover when you're talking about mindset. But I was hoping that we could start with a story. Okay. And I wanted to start with a story of... uh, one of your experiences and i know probably you can't tell some of the stories that you have <laughs> yeah, yeah. um but within the within the list of stories that you can tell tell a story where you really had to go back to certain principles where you had to you found yourself actively using mindset practices not in this kind of retroactively you know way but where you had to kind of tell yourself something based yeah. on some of the training that you had to help get you out of a tough situation yeah you know the best the best place to start with stories is probably seal training um mm-hmm. because because you you go into seal training and you recognize quite immediately that you are going to be taken down to below zero in terms of capability and and it's interesting a lot of people assume and think seal training is all about the physical and <clears throat> it's decidedly not i mean you do some some very very physical things but but a buddy of mine we were talking we were talking about this just the other day and we were saying you know it it's the 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 goal is in fact to to break yourself physically so you can actually use your mindset to get yeah, you the to physical use. is just an access point it's an access point, right yeah, yeah. Uh, because you can only do so many push-ups you can only do right. you know you can only run so fast you can only hold that damn boat on your head for so long um <laughs> and so so i i recognized and so i can just say i mean there were many times in training where i found myself going into my head and 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 beginning to make logical connections and assumptions and asking myself some logical questions. So here's a good example, um, Hell Week, which is the coup de grace of SEAL training. Fifth week, you start on a Sunday afternoon and you don't finish till the following Friday around two or three is when they secure. You only get about four hours of sleep for the entire week. And they do everything to you to include, make you, you know, keep you cold, wet and sandy the whole time. And I think it's, it's no, Tuesday night is known as one of the worst nights in terms of cold. And there's a there's an evolution called Steel Steel Pier. So you go out, it's in Coronado. So people who aren't from Southern California don't recognize, they don't realize how cold the water is in Southern California. Yeah. But um, but you go out to steel to this pier right there on the base and uh, they make you line up and you know it's two or three in the morning and they make you jump in. And of course you have all your all your you know camouflage on and things like that, and you have to tread water for you know quite a while. And they say, okay, everybody get out. And they get out and they say, okay, now take off all your clothes down to your underwear. All right, so you do that. And of course the wind hits you and you're really, now you're, you're really cold. And, and they say, okay, you're getting back in. And what's interesting is that when they told us that, there were immediately a bunch of people who quit. And I remember, I remember literally saying to myself, like thinking, I said, wait a second, the, these camouflage utilities that I just took off provided me no extra warmth in that water none right so so the water is not going to be any colder when i jump in in my underwear than it was when i was just in there um and that that basically means so i'm just going to jump in right Mm -hmm. people you could you could almost tell that the guys were quitting because they thought it was going to be even colder when they jumped back in Um, but i remember being able to kind of step back mentally and and do that calculus and i think that the guys who make it through training are the ones who can do that 
And the question is where they where we all got that <laughs> that capability. I think I think we could all probably rewind our stories and and pick out places in our lives where we practice that grit because really that's a, that's the essence of grit. I mean that, that the process that is that grit is the result of is that mental process of being able to kind of tamp down your anxiety enough that you can bring your frontal lobe back on line and ask some questions about your environment that that you can basically focus on and move towards. And yeah. um, and so I, I did some rewinding and I said to myself, okay, where did that where did that ability to do that come? You know, where did the ability to kind of chunk my environment come from? And I, you know, when I was a kid, my dad didn't like using the heat, the central heat. So he used to get, you know, we had a fireplace, so he used to get cords of wood delivered into our driveway. And um, and my brother and I, it was our job to move that wood up to the front of the house and mm-hmm. stack it. But the problem was the the shortest route to the front of the house was a was a stair was a stone staircase, and you can't take a wheelbarrow of wood up a staircase, right? So we had to go the long way, which was all the way around the house, above uh, up a hill, and to the front. And so it was just wheelbarrow after wheelbarrow of of wood. And I remember both of us kind of when you would, we, when we attacked that pile, you never we never looked at the pile holistically. In fact, we made we made a deliberate effort not to look at the pile because if you did it looked like the pile was never moving right? yeah eat an elephant one bite at that's a time. right so we just focused on on one wheelbarrow at a time and just did that and just put your head down and do it until finally you realize oh okay we're we're almost done you know and so so i kind of i think that's one of those things that helped me train my brain to be able to chunk environments which helped in training one of the things that i talk about uh, and I talk about a lot. I talked about it in the second chapter of my book on the day on your life, and yeah. it was um, involving cold therapy, interestingly yeah. enough, yeah. and doing ice baths and different cold plunges and cold immersions. And I talk about the skill I call mental override, mm-hmm. which is this thing where you feel the resistance within you, but there's some part of you, some essence of you that's in the in the captain seat, you know, like the team captain of your mind. It's just like, okay, I hear you, everybody. Yeah. I hear you, the part of you that doesn't want to be cold. I hear right. you, the part of you that wants to quit. I hear the part of you that wants to make an excuse. I'm the team captain and we're going. Yeah. You know, it's the team captain of your psyche. And we have that ability mm-hmm. all the time. And I think one of the tragedies of our time is that people don't emphasize that enough. Yeah. That they, everybody everything is a well this is a disease state it's not your fault this is a this is the condition this is how you were born this is all of that may be true and i'm not denying that there are those factors that make things incredibly more difficult for certain people and less difficult for other people right i'm not trying to deny that abject reality because that's the truth but there's also the reality that we all have a team captain mm-hmm. and that team captain can at any point say no i'm going to break through this ice go in this water and do my Wim Hof breathing and, yep. and sit there and I'm gonna I'm gonna be all right and yeah, I'm gonna make yeah, it through. Like yeah. we have that ability to harness that, but it's something that requires training and it does. practice. It does. And and you know, it's a great it's a great analogy. And I, you know, it makes me think, what does a captain really do? A captain helps focus a team. And yeah. so part of the way that we can step through challenge and uncertainty and stress is to actually begin to focus on small goals. This this whole eat eat an elephant one one bite at a time. You know that's a, that's really what you're saying is you're focusing on a bite, you know, and yeah, um, micro progression. Yeah, micro progression. And so I remember, you know, uh, running with the boats on my head during Hell Week. Okay, and it felt like we it was middle of the night. We'd been doing it forever, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is this sucks, right? 
And I said to myself in that moment, I said, okay, you know what? I'm just going to focus on the end of the berm. We were, you know, on this, on the beach. So there's a berm, a sand berm next to us. I'm going to focus on getting to the end of this berm. Um, and that's what I focused on. And when I got to the end of the berm, I said, okay, I'm going to focus on the next end of the berm. Right. And what I was in fact doing, I realized was I was actually literally mentally, uh, choosing steps. I was, I was chunking my environment. And so taking that, I have an ice bath at home too. And, and my, my 16 year old, 16 year old likes to get in it, into it, which is awesome. He was getting into it when he was 14 and my wife tried it too. And when they first got into it, I said, okay, before, before you get into it, I want you, we're going to, we're going to think of something, think of a goal that we're going to focus on as we get in. Cause we all know if you're in an ice bath, it's really the first minute that's the worst, yeah, right? Then you start totally. to numb out and you can, stay in there for a while except for the hands except for the hands yeah <laughs> the yeah so hands and are, for a while the and, hands are annoying the whole way somehow. admittedly i was i started wearing uh i, I had uh, uh wetsuit gloves on yeah too, just to because I again, get it because yeah the value and, proposition of that other than psychologically just to help yourself endure that's right punishment yeah. it's not like it's cooling core body temperature it's not it's not helping you physiologically creating and, mammalian yeah, dive right. reflex through your fingers right <laughs> and i've We're had not, cold digits so often in my, in my yeah, life that i was totally. like yeah i'm not gonna do it so booties and 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 gloves sometimes we use but um but i said to, to each of them i said okay as we get in I, w- I want you to focus on my my hand or my finger which i put at the at the other end of the tub and i said we're gonna we're just gonna count to 20 you know and so they get in and they say one two and we'd, we'd focus on that and once we hit that wicket we say okay now let's pick something else let's focus on we're gonna focus on this bicycle because in, in the garage we're focused on the bicycle and mm-hmm. count to five you know and uh and what that does is it it switches your brain to actually help control and move through challenge and stress it's kind of like engaging your captain because the captain's saying hey focus on me right now yeah. follow me and we're gonna and once we get to the end we'll choose something else and this is in fact exactly how you walk through stress challenge and uncertainty it's, it's exactly how seals are what i call masters of uncertainty you know mm-hmm. basically we drop into environments we're able to manage our stress enough so that our frontal lobe is still online right because you know fear stress and anxiety start taking that offline and then we begin to ask questions about our environment. We say things like, okay, what about this? What about all of this that doesn't make sense? Do I understand? And we make that list however small. Okay, what can I control in this moment? And we move to that. And then we ask the question again. Okay, now what can I control in this moment? Or now what do I understand? And now what can I control? And in fact, as you step through, you find that the the locus of control or the under, the, the, the I guess the funnel starts to widen because you begin to understand your environment as you move through your environment right um it's kind of like that rock climber climbing up the the face and it's like it starts to open up you know understand more um and this is what happens i think you get that train you get that mental training in in buds and seal training so that you can then apply it to real world i don't think you have a chance to get any type of training like this unless you intentionally put yourself in difficult situations in situations that challenge you yeah you're absolutely right like this is the only this is the only way to to find that access point or you can if you're if you're able to every single one of us has bad shit happen to us right so so you can use i mean everybody can don't waste any opportunity yeah you could everybody could have used covid and quarantine as an opportunity uh we can and so if we again if we're cognizant of this stuff we can say okay bad opportunity feels horrible 
I can use this right now. I've done but that. But without the training, you probably won't be able without to. Knowing. It's like trying to go into game day immediately. It'd be like, yeah. okay, SEALs, you've had no practice. It's now a live live bullet firefight. Right. You right. know, like good yeah. luck or, well, a and you have to, or and, anybody. You and know? you have to manage the anxiety too. So, sure. so interesting. So fear really is that combination of anxiety plus uncertainty. Um, because you can have one without the other and not be afraid. Uh, you can be... You can be anxious without being uncertain, right? That's, I'm going to give a presentation to my boss next week. I know what mm -hmm. I'm presenting. I know my boss. I'm a little anxious, but I'm not, it's pretty certain. No fear. You can be uncertain without being anxious. Okay, well, that's every kid on Christmas Eve. So no fear there. If you add the two, if you combine the two, fear starts to set in. When fear starts to set in, your amygdala starts to, to, to tick in. And you're, and you're, and, and the more, it ha the more that, ha the more fear you get, the more your frontal lobe starts to kind of take a back seat. So we can buy down our fear by buying down one or the other. But typically, buying down anxiety has to happen first so that you can buy down uncertainty. And what we have to understand is anxiety is all internal, right? That's a physiological sure. response. So we can buy down anxiety through physiological means, breathing techniques, um, visual techniques, uh, so that we bring our frontal lobe back online. And we can then buy down uncertainty. Uncertainty is all external, right? So that's when we have to start asking those questions. But they have to be asked deliberately. Um, so part of the training, part of the preparation that you're talking about for people would be to understand first how to manage anxiety so that they can then ask those logical questions with minimal emotion <laughs> and mm -hmm. begin to step through it. So that, I yeah. think that's the process. Yeah, it's uh, every different one of these things you get a... Uh... So that's one aspect of something that's going to create anxiety or fear. Sometimes it's just actually how much suffering can you endure? Like yeah. How much grit, like grit is another thing that yeah. is such a valuable skill to have. And I don't know any other way to do that other than a hard work, you know, for a normal person, obviously there's other, lots of different ways, right. but a really hard workout where you really stick to it and yeah. you just don't bargain with yourself. Yeah. Like, no, we're going to do this imam or amrap or whatever situation that we got and we're going to go yeah we're going to go to the end or do this run or do this climb or do this you know sprint or this swim or i think mm -hmm. that's one of the reasons why those are so valuable or uh you know a sweat lodge practice mm -hmm. you know where you're actually going into a lodge or even creating it in your own sauna like i'm going to be in here for an hour yeah and no matter how hot it gets obviously within reason you don't want to kill yourself right right um, but you're going to stick to it or this ice bath practice or this thing like we just absolutely need to train all of those things. And not only that, then put yourself in situations where your own self-judge is going to get activated. Yeah, yeah. Like where you could let somebody down. You know, we just had a fit for service event, which is my fellowship I was just telling you about. Mm -hmm. We created a competitive environment with the whole purpose. Because when we're kids, you just compete to compete and you think that's the whole point. But the yeah. whole point is to teach you about life. But nobody teaches you that the whole point of playing basketball <laughs> is not to get a ball in the net, it's to teach you that's, about life. That's right. That's because right. you think it's just all about getting a basket and then you realize like, what the hell, it doesn't even matter. It's right. a silly game anyways. That's but right. the point is to teach you about life. So we recreated a, a series of events to help teach people, put people on teams and like really bonded the team together and then had the teams compete against each other with the full intention that the point of this is to watch your mind try to be nervous, be worried that you're going to let your team down, find an excuse to pull yourself out of the yeah, event. Yeah. And then if you do lose, because half of the people had to lose, it was one-on-one -on -one competition, then how much are you going to judge yourself? Right. How much are you going to beat yourself up? And then keep that awareness the whole time. Yeah, but without yeah. that inciting event and us buying in to create something that mattered, 
then you then it wouldn't have mattered then it's like oh yeah whatever we played the silly little game it doesn't matter but when it matters then all of these things activate and then with awareness you get the chance to work on them yeah well you're so right i mean the lessons are everywhere and and the idea is can we extract these lessons rather than just looking at this thing for what we think it is um and i would offer that you know i think you're right i think athletic events and really pushing yourself physically is a great way to to practice some of this stuff the only thing that the only thing that's missing often in the athletic endeavors depending on what it is of course mm-hmm. is the uncertainty element you know athletic endeavors tend to be certain right yeah. so i would encourage people if they want to practice this certainly you know getting in the gym and doing things that that go beyond what they think they can do is is part of it but find things that actually scare you a little bit right if you are an introvert we just talked about introvert extrovert right i'm an introvert if you are an introvert uh maybe you you sign up to give a talk in front of people sure. right maybe you go walk up to people and and um and introduce yourself to to strangers uh what are those things that actually you think about i don't like heights so roller coasters i can't stand them so when i'm with my boys you know one of them does like roller coasters I say okay i'm going to go on the roller coaster with you right so i can practice this idea of working through fear um because again these life events that happen to us are typically going to uh include that uncertainty portion i mean that yeah. that first day of quarantine when covid you know none of us knew what was going on all of us had uncertainty and those of us who understood what uncertainty feels like and how to deal with it found ourselves fairly you know okay you know yeah, we were able to kind of better move in a better it. position so, so it's a yeah we have to practice it it seems like in some of the events i 100 percent agree that move towards your fear as long as the fear doesn't represent actual danger right like totally you know totally. like there's yeah. some things that are actually dangerous that you like, need to you need to flee from don't yeah. pet a rattlesnake <laughs> if right. you're afraid of snakes like right. go to a you know a boa constrictor yeah. or a whatever something else right. that's not right. gonna like not gonna you know cause you to lose your leg right <laughs> you know, like Start that's, small. <laughs> yeah exactly right <laughs> yeah um so so that's an important thing but always moving towards your fear there's so much growth there's so much yes. growth on the other edge of that however some of these things that we're talking about when there's fears even if you're public speaking yeah all right you could freeze there is some ang- there is some uncertainty about how you'll respond and i suppose that's one category of uncertainty but as you were speaking it was i was thinking to myself like true uncertainty uncertainty mm-hmm. like you guys have in the battlefield yeah you know that's like real uncertain i don't know how many fucking enemy are there i don't know what weapons they have right. i don't know what situation i'm going into i have to be ready for anything and it's going to be a surprise we'll right. do our best intel but we have to train and prepare for a surprise so that seems to be even another category another echelon of uncertainty beyond just i'm going to do this thing there'll be a microphone there'll be me i don't know how i'll respond right but but it's like I'm going to go to an audience and they may have, you know, super soakers, they may have BB guns, they may have right, tomatoes, right, right, right. you know, they may be nice. I don't know what's going to happen. It's <laughs> yeah, like yeah. there's like another level to the game. Yeah. What do you think for non-operators? Like what's a way to train that level of uncertainty because that's that's kind of life. You know, life it does sometimes have that level of uncertainty. COVID is a great example of real uncertainty. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny you should say that cuz I I was doing a talk a few weeks ago and and one of the organizers before i went on she's like are you nervous i was like well i'm not really i mean no one's gonna be shooting at me right <laughs> she's <laughs> yeah. like no i was like then i don't really have anything to worry about um no it's a great point and i think uh so this is where this is where it gets somewhat subjective and this is where danger should probably come into the mix i mean someone mm-hmm. you know skydiving is something that someone can go try if they hate heights right that adds an element of danger um an element of working through fear like true yeah. true fear 
that actually, I mean, not many people, you know, not many people die skydiving, you know, uh, so so it's fairly safe, right? So so what are those endeavors that people can choose in context with their own fear uh, that allow them to work through it? Um, it's really it's really that I mean, uncertainty that at that level, you're going to feel it. You're going to feel mm-hmm. it very, you know, physiologically. You're going to feel that your your palms are going to get sweaty. You're going to feel nervous. You're going to feel that that real kind of deep kind of uh oh, right? And there are and and again, it's contextual. Some people love, you know, some people love heights and they love roller coasters and they like get me on an airplane. I jump out of it in two seconds. You know, for other people, it's being underwater. You know, you know, there are a lot of people who can't can't even think about being underwater. Whereas I could, I've fallen asleep underwater before in the pitch black. I mean, I'm that comfortable. So, so I think <laughs> it's it's finding those contexts inside of which you have some of those really raw wait versions. i have to pause you've literally fallen asleep i've literally fallen asleep <laughs> underwater. <laughs> yeah so the yeah. so obviously there's some physiological mechanism that the body knows not to breathe water. well no i was on i was on a regulator yeah we were in, <laughs> okay. we were in these like, little right. yeah these little mini subs that we have you know but it's wet it's a wet sub so yeah and you're sitting in the back of those things you know for hours waiting to go to you're, you're transiting somewhere yeah so you're just sitting there with your regulator on and you're just you know you know, pitch black and you're just like there's nothing to do but really kinda, sleep and visualize right <laughs> yeah <laughs> so it's kind of peaceful yeah it is yeah so but there is just not to not to derail us too far but i've heard that there is a, a practice that i don't know how widespread it is in seal team training mm-hmm. where you actually hold uh, a weight and walk on the bottom of a pool until you pass out and then right. you get then you get brought up from yeah. underneath it. Yeah. And someone I'm I'm in a group of I'm in a men's group and we love like testing ourselves. And right. one of the guys is a is a free diver and really working on his breath control. And he's like suggesting this to the group. And right. he's like looking at me, expecting me to be like, hell yeah. And I'm like, man, that sounds a lot like drowning. Yes. Like, I'm yes. not very interested right, in this. Right. Yeah. But so tell me about this practice. Cause this seems like to me, in my mind, I'm very I'm also very comfortable in the water. I've been mm-hmm. very comfortable in the water my whole life. But this seems like a level that that actually scares the shit out of me. Right. Yeah. It should. It does me too. That's a myth. <laughs> they don't. They don't, they don't drown, actually do that. They don't drown he you. He was going to drown me. Yeah. That is a that is Colin, a myth. I mean, they, they, I mean, motherfucker. If we just think about it logically, <laughs> the U.S. government, in any capacity, if they were to be conducting training that would literally drown someone and have them, you have to re- resuscitate them by brain. That would not. That's a no go. Right. So, but I think the, the what was wor- the group in Game of Thrones that did that? from the iron islands the fucking oh yes it was yes that was the king's uh yeah the the king's ceremony right so what a great yeah um no i think where that comes from is in in seal training you have to do what's called a 50 meter underwater swim right and um and so the pool that you do it inside of is uh is 25 meters wide right so you Mm -hmm. basically have to drop in on one end swim turn around and swim back and uh and there's a lot of guys who pass out doing that okay um and so if you if the and if the guys pass out they just pull them up and and get them but but everybody's you have a really keen the instructors are really keeping an eye there's instructors in the water the yeah dive team whole thing. yeah it is not it's very safely run and again i didn't pass out what you what you what you learn on that 50 meter underwater water swim is the is the capability of your body right because because that urge to breathe when you're underwater or holding your breath is not because of a lack of oxygen it's because mm-hmm. of a buildup of co2 um, so, so in other words, we, we still have a lot of oxygen in our system that we can utilize while we're underwater, which is what freedivers do. I mean, freedivers yeah. are, freedivers train themselves to, to move past that 
discomfort, right? Which can be very dangerous because once you once you train yourself to move past it, um, the point at which you lose consciousness is instant, right? So you, so you have to be really really careful when you're training that way. We've had some seals die because they were doing breath holding training, you know, in a pool, and there was no you didn't have observers, right? So um, mm. and they trained themselves to go past it. We had a couple guys die like in, together in the pool underwater. They were just holding breath underwater, and they both Whoa. passed out and died. Tragic. Uh, yeah. So. Uh, so yeah, so don't do that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, don't okay, don't drown good. yourself. My instincts um, were on point. <laughs> I would definitely, I would definitely. I mean, if you want to do stuff like that, then do some underwater swims and start to feel that discomfort. And you can actually mark your, you can mark positions on the pool, and say, okay, I can, you know, last time I went this far, and look, I can actually go farther. Type stuff. Always, always have observers, safety observers, because again, if you shallow water blackout. I mean, as soon as you come up to the surface, you're likely, as long as you're coming up to the surface immediately, you're likely going to start breathing. You don't, need, you don't even need much resuscitation, per se. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, so definitely have observers if you're doing yeah. that. I tell this to my boys, because my boys are water rats like me, and we have a swimming pool. Mm -hmm. And they're like, hey, Dad, can you get us some weights? You know, because we want to use weights to dive down to the bottom. I was like, okay, yes. I, so I got them a weight. So it's like, the rule here is if you're diving with weights, you do not do it by yourself. There has yeah. to be someone here, right? And they get it, you know, because I, you know, when they when I tell them that seals have died doing it, then it it you know cues them in. So, um, but it is a it's a I think it's a it's a reasonable endeavor to kind of test yourself, um, but don't please don't deliberately drown. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. And one of the things that I can recall too is <clears throat> another aspect of the mindset that's really helpful starts to go to the the people that are around you mm -hmm. right like yes. i think i imagine that when a seal in training is going with that 50 meter swim they may be able to swim far more than they ever would on their own like if they're practicing alone yeah. in the pool maybe right. the that rare breed yeah. can perform at the same level all by themselves and when they can just get up anytime they want yeah but most of us aren't like that and i remember you know the longest breath hold in the cold that i did was when I was with Wim Hof in mm -hmm. Poland and I was submerged under the ice. He had a, a frozen over little tub in his back and we cracked the ice and took the ice out and jumped in. And I had two of my brothers there who were in the water with me and I was gonna hold their legs loosely to keep me you know, underneath yeah, the water. Underwater, yeah. And then everybody else was counting the yeah. time, you know, and counting out 15, 30, 45, one. Could you hear them counting? I could hear them. Okay, cool. And my goal was to get to 130, right? That yeah. was like the threshold of like, I've never gotten above 130. And yeah. so I was like getting everybody fired up, like 130 is the number. I hit 130, but because I was like holding my brothers there and I could, and they were like cheering me on and they started to go kind of nuts as yeah, I was yeah, getting close yeah. to 130. I was like, oh, I got more in me. Yeah. I got more in me. And then 145, 2, 215. Yeah. And they were just, their energy, you know, was so much that I was able to do, I don't know, 45 seconds beyond yeah. my, you know, frozen underwater max. Yeah. Yeah. Just yeah. because of the camaraderie and that kind of spirit. Yeah. And I imagine, you know, that's really what you guys experience as well is like when you're in it together as a team that team is capable of so much more than each individual isolated. You push yourself farther than you ever would uh, for that reason. In fact, I talk about this in the book in terms of the attributes that uh, that work at either polarity, right? So most of the attributes I talk about in the book, uh, you know, if you get a little higher, that's probably better, right? But there was, there was a set of attributes that I talked about um, that didn't fall, in, or I was right, as I was writing, I realized didn't fall into that category because I realized the opposites 
were both powerful. So those the three were uh, patience and impatience, right? So in other words, you can be highly, highly successful as a patient person, and you can be highly, highly successful as an impatient person, right? So, mm -hmm. so being high on either of those scales doesn't affect your success or performance. Um, the other one was competitiveness, right? Because the the idea is many people think competitiveness is a requirement to be highly successful, but but the, which I agree with, right? But but I don't agree with the corollary, the implied corollary that non-competitiveness doesn't work either. I am not competitive at all. When I, when I used to play sports, I was like, I didn't really care if we won or lost. I love the game. I love the intricacy. And I thought that would hurt me when I w went to SEAL training. But what I realized about SEAL training is SEAL training actually honors both polarities. In SEAL training, you have two awards at the end of training. You have the, uh, the uh, honor man. The honor man is the person who had all the top scores on the runs, all the top scores on the swims, O courses, all that stuff. So it's a competitive award. Um, the other award is called the Fire in the Gut Award. And the Fire in the Gut Award is is voted on by the instructors and the students. And that's the person who showed the most grit during BUDS. And oftentimes that person has the lowest scores, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it has nothing, you can't, you can't win it. You have to earn it, right? So, um, and what I recognized about those two is in a team, well, really in any team, but certainly SEAL teams, uh, to have that competitive mindset can be powerful. The competitive mindset sees the world immediately like, says okay what are the what are the rules and boundaries and constraints and how can i win inside this environment that's yeah. how that's what competitive mind sees my type of mind says i don't care about the rules <laughs> i don't care about what people are doing how can i go around and do something different right mm -hmm. um when you're looking at, at at missions and operations overseas getting to the enemy rescuing hostages um sometimes the up the line approach is the way to go it's like hey we're going you know this is this is rules we're going right up the line a lot of times it's hey how can we think differently about that right yeah now, this is a long answer. I'm going to get to your, the original thing. The last uh, bit, the last, last two attributes I talk about in that category are fear of rejection versus insouciance to what other people think, or I don't care what people think. And what, what you'll find in the SEAL teams is most of us have a heightened sense of fear of rejection, okay? Mm -hmm. Because we do not, by any stretch of the imagination, want to let down those people around us or look bad, right? So it's a guy like me who didn't really like skydiving much, um, we're getting ready to go out the door at 22,000 feet. It's pitch black and, you know, it, the weather's not that good. I'm going, <laughs> no matter how yeah. I feel, I'm going and I'm going because the other guys are going, right? right. I'm not going to let them down. So that, that, that fear of rejection is part of what you're talking about in terms of it pushes you to do things, to go beyond uh, things that you thought you could do because you just, you want to be part of that group. You don't want to be, you just want to, you want to feel that feeling of, 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 bonding with others sure. now there are other people who are true like iconoclasts in the sense that they don't they don't give a crap what other when anybody else thinks and those are the people they can be there obviously there's there's hugely successful i mean so those are iconoclasts are people who change our world right because they sure. they they go out on their own path and they say i'm not doing that i'm just gonna do my own thing i don't care if anybody likes it i don't care what people think oftentimes they generate their own new group yeah. because of what they do so so you can utilize both but i think what you're talking about is true i think we can we can oftentimes, and I would say whether you're someone who is who trends towards that that uh, iconoclastic view or not, if you're surrounded by people you love, people you respect, and people who who um, who you really f think highly of, you're gonna you're gonna care at least to a to a, a small degree of what people think, right? Yeah. And um and it, it it'll help push you. So so that group mentality and that having that group can really help as well. Yeah, it seems like what you know, a lot of what your philosophy is and, and what you just expressed is that 
to really appreciate that whatever you have, it can be used to your advantage. Absolutely. You know, to a certain degree. So yeah. super competitive, great. Use that to your advantage. Not competitive, use that to your advantage. There is probably a toxic expression of all of these different oh, things. Oh, totally. You know, a toxic level of competitiveness or a toxic level of fear of rejection, mm -hmm. in which case you're paralyzed because yes. you're so afraid to do anything that you might get rejected for that you don't do anything and you're just frozen. You know, so that would yeah, be like- peer pressure. Right. Uh, peer pressure uh, uh, is is a toxic use of fear of rejection, right? I'm mm -hmm. going to do something, even though I, even though there's cognitive dissonance, and I don't really feel like sure. doing it, I'm doing it because I I don't want to not be part of the group. Um, yeah, you're absolutely right. The attributes um, in any in any extreme, even the even the kind of the 23 ones that a little bit higher is better. Uh, too much is bad. I mean, too much courage is that's like the bulldog approach. That's like you know you're you're not appropriately assessing risk. You know, too much adaptability or the limp noodle, too much, you know, of any of these things um, is going to be bad. Uh, but the, the, so in those other ones, what I would say and what I'm, what I'm recognizing is we all, first of all, what you said is really true. We're all, I kind of talk about people like automobiles, right? We're all human, like we're all automobiles. Some of us are Jeeps, some of us are Ferraris, some of us are SUVs. And there's no judgment there because the Jeep can do things the Ferrari can't do, the Ferrari can do things the Jeep can't do. So the idea is, can you lift your hood and figure out what engine you're working with? Because you may be a Jeep that's been trying to run on a Ferrari track or a Ferrari that's been trying to run on a Jeep track. And that's okay too. If you're a Jeep that's running on a Ferrari track, if you choose to run on the Ferrari track, that's fine. But but you can, you can say, hey, now I know some of those things that I can do and develop so that I can better run as a Jeep on the Ferrari track. Um, yeah. And then you can start asking yourself, okay, wherever I fall on these attribute scales, they actually they actually play off of each other, right? So if you're low on adaptability, right, but high on open-mindedness, you're probably gonna be okay, right? Because your your high open-mindedness buttresses your low adaptability, yeah. right? Um, so they so I was gonna, when I was writing the book, I, I really thought about writing about how these attributes interplay but i realized if i started to do that it would have been like a thousand page yeah, it forms, <laughs> a, forms yeah. a spider web yeah it forms yeah. a spider web i couldn't get out of but you're yeah it's all about how we show up and ma and using what we have to the maximum capability what do you think is the if someone's going to focus on a couple let's say you know our three is arbitrary everybody loves yeah. three i don't know why people love three but we do but right. if you're somewhere around there Pick a couple of different attributes mm -hmm. that you think have the biggest delta of impact on somebody's life yeah. if they start to work on those. And also the greatest ability for us to ch to actually change those different characteristics. So yeah. it's like both of those factors, if you're going to find like, okay, here's a couple of these attributes, you can change it. And if you do change it, it will dramatically change your life. Yeah, I, I would say hands down it's the grid attributes and it's four of them it's courage adaptability perseverance and resilience courage uh, adaptability perseverance resilience resilience uh, i believe while i don't i try not to put any value on the attributes i believe those are probably the most important elemental attributes for human existence right because those speak to how we operate in the world in every capacity right and so because the mental acuity attributes are fine you know how i process the information drive attributes hey, listen you don't have to you don't have to be necessarily driven you can be you can do what you want to do um even leadership and team ability those aren't really you know have tos um but but the grit ones are have tos and i think i think if people were to focus on those um and look at where they stand and developing those that's when they start learning what we were talking about at the beginning of the conversation how to effectively move and perform inside of 
these events that happen that we have not predicted that that bring up our fear that uh, are uncertain. Um, courage is stepping into our fear, right? Again, courage is it can't. We've heard it all the time, but people forget it cannot exist in the absence of fear. And this is proved neurologically, right? Mm-hmm. Um, courage is a switch, and when we when we step into when we choose the fight response, it's a specific switch that 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 gets clicked in our brain, which gives us a dopamine reward, right? So that is fear. That is the expression neurologically of fear. Uh, excuse me, of courage. Um, so and that it can't and that 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 choice doesn't happen unless fear is present, right? So, um, so practicing courage is something that is always going to help. Um, perseverance, listen, that's- Practicing courage. I yeah. talk about this a bit and I, I say, you know, in my course, Go For Your Win, I talked about it, which is something I released five years ago. I've talked about it in a lot of different posts and commentaries. The way that I encourage people to do that is to attack some trivial fear. Mm-hmm. You know, so like find something that you're afraid of again that doesn't have a high correlation to ridiculous danger. You know, like don't do proximity flying base jumping when you're afraid of heights. <laughs> like right. go just go for a regular parachute, man. That's right. Like it's That's all right. good. Yeah. Like, it's you don't good. need to like up the stakes yeah. super yeah. high. Um, and I, I think you know, for, so for anybody listening who wants to practice this, one of the things that I one of the things that I do uh, when I want to work on my courage and I'll test myself every now and then is during this time of year we get tree cockroaches that find their way into my house mm-hmm. right so they just come from the trees and then they work their way through whatever little crevices those little buggers yeah. i don't like them at all yeah, yeah. i don't like them they somehow bother me more than they should because they're not <laughs> dangerous sure so normally i'll let them out well now we have cats and the cats like destroy them right they like go out hunting at night and there's little carcasses all over the house <laughs> However, before that, I would see one and I would say like, all right, my choices are here. I don't like smashing them. Um, right, yeah, I don't I like, so I like to let them out, but I can either do what I normally do and trap them and shuffle them out without having to touch them. Or I could grab them with my hand mm-hmm. and watch them try to squirm out between the little cracks in my in my fingers. And it, it elicits like that yes, fear response, yes. just in a small way. Yeah. But when I'm able to successfully do that, for for that next like four hours i'm like i am all that is man <laughs> you know like right. i feel different that's about right. myself i look my lens of perception out into the world and through myself i think of myself as someone who's a different yes. a different human being yeah that you is know? the dopamine hit i mean yeah. we, we we literally people have to understand this when we when we get when we're given that choice fight or flight okay um, and again, freeze is often talked about, but freeze is literally just an oscillation. Neurologically, it's an oscillation between the two. You're trying to decide. Um, when we choose to fight, which means step into our fear, our our brain gives us, our body gives us a, a dopamine hit. And dopamine, one of the most powerful chemicals on the planet, right, says this is good, keep doing this. It makes us feel good. Mm-hmm. It's also the root of all addictive behavior, right? Um, stepping into our fear feels good um and so this is what we have to do and i think what you say is absolutely correct and what the emphasis should be is the feeling afterwards because if people pick something small and do it they're going to feel great you know and it's because they're getting they're getting hit with dopamine because of it right um and then they can step and try something else you know um and then try something else but could be karaoke could be karaoke could be you know again it could be speaking in front it could be starting a conversation it could be you know, I don't know, you name it. it. Could be listen. If you're afraid of the water, it could be swimming in a swimming pool. If you're mm-hmm. afraid of open water, which most people are fine in swimming pools, but it's the it's the open water. It might be just swimming out, you know, into the you know into the uh, open water. For, While someone's uh, blaring the Jaws soundtrack. 
<laughs> well, yeah, that, but that ups it, right? That yeah, ups exactly. it. So you, gotta, you, know, you don't want to go into a amygdala <laughs> response, right? So yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Practicing that um, that those things that you're scared of. But again, it could be almost as simple as someone who is who who is and has been out of shape their entire lives. And they really want to get in shape. They don't know how to do. It. They say, "Well, maybe you know, they, they maybe they don't want to go start running or or whatever." Um, it's it's like, "Hey, I'm going to buy a pair of running shoes. That's my first step, you know." And then when I get in, I'm going to put the running shoes by the front door, okay. And the next morning, I'm actually going to get up with an alarm and I'm going to put on my running shoes, okay. And then the next day, they do. Then I'm going to put on my running shoes. I'm going to walk outside. I mean, you you can chunk this however you want. The mm-hmm. the the idea is to chunk it. You have to chunk it into into sizes that are meaningful enough for you, so that when you accomplish it, you feel that feeling, right? Um, if you were to just say uh, with the with the cockroaches, hey, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna put it in a cup, right? That's that's not it's not a meaningful no. enough chunk for you, right? So uh, so the 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 size of the chunks have to be subjective, but yes, courage can absolutely be practiced. Yeah, it's uh, and some of these things you have to just actually do it. Like you can't just put your legs in the cold plunge. You no, know, like unless you unless go... that unless that step is meaningful for you. Okay, right? yeah, yeah. So because, that's a good way to yeah, think about if it. It's, right? If it's if 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 uh, if putting your feet in the if just putting your feet is is meaningful, that's cool. Would I recommend it? No, because you're just going to feel how cold it is. <laughs> right? yeah, so exactly. You might as well just go in. <laughs> um, but if it's meaningful for uh, if it's meaningful for you, then you do that for a minute, and you're like, oh my gosh, I just did that. Yeah, you will yeah, feel yeah. again it's all subjective so that's a beautiful way to look at it about how to decide like how yeah, much to do what the and, step and is. not use this objective metric of what you have to do right you know so right. even if it's let's say it's a cold shower just turn it cold for a little bit yes. you know like just feel it and mm-hmm. um and you'll know where that meaningful moment is to you and don't cheat yourself don't cheat yourself yeah get that dopamine hit because you will love it you know if you do it and it'll you'll feel it and you're like okay i'm gonna do it again uh tomorrow or yeah. do, or take the take the next step and, and even those steps don't have to be necessarily uh immediately sequential right i mean dipping your feet in the cold plunge um every day for a week might you know might be fine for you and then you're going to find that dopamine hit doesn't feel so here's a great example i don't I, i've said it many times i'll say it again i don't like heights okay um and so on every seal base there's an obstacle course west coast at buds east coast um and on every obstacle course there's a cargo net climb okay the cargo net climb is a 65 foot net that goes straight up and you basically climb up one side and you once you're at the top you flip over and then you climb down okay um for for people who don't like heights it's it's tough Mm -hmm. (laughs) right yeah well when i was uh even when i was in the teams i'd usually go whenever i go for a run you know i'd i'd plan my run that i'd go by that cargo net and when i hit it i'd climb to the top and at the top, which is the worst part, right? I would just sit there, and sitting there, I could feel. I basically was breathing in the fear. You know, I I would feel nervous. You know, I'd I'd, I'd just sit there and I'd feel the wind and the sway and all that stuff, and then I'd go down. Um, and then and I do that over and over again. After a while, you know, a week or maybe even two weeks. After a while, when I got at the top, I wasn't. I didn't feel it. I feel yeah. I feel awesome when I finished it. After a while, I. I wasn't I wasn't scared anymore. It's called it's it's basically inoculation. It's fear inoculation. Um, but when you inoculate yourself, you also lose the dopamine reward, right? So so if people are going to take these steps, they have to take them in context with the size and bite they want to take, um, and they have to recognize take them until 
you're not getting that reward anymore. And as soon as you don't get that reward, you need to up the ante, you know, and mm. take and and take the next step uh, because you will inoculate yourself after a period of time. This is courage. Let's mm -hmm. go through the other ones. Okay, perseverance. Uh, so perseverance again. Perseverance is interesting. What was cool about writing the book is is I got to dive into these things in ways I never thought about them before. Mm -hmm. um, and what I recognize with perseverance is it it in fact is a combination of three things. It's a combination of uh, persistence, tenacity, and uh, fortitude. Um, and the reason why it's a combination of those things is because persistence and tenacity people often think are synonymous, but they're not. Um, persistence is I'm going to basically do something over and over again until I get a result. Okay, that's the stone cutter approach, right? The stone cutter taps the taps the stone in the same place, you know, you know, eighty times, ninety times, never sees anything, and on the hundredth tap, it breaks. Right? That's mm -hmm. persistence. Sometimes persistence is required. You have to just you just have to go head down and do it. Tenacity is I'm going to try something. And if it doesn't work, I'm going to try something else. I'm going to change and try something else. This is the car mechanic, right? The car mechanic will check the belts first. If it's not the belts, then they'll check the the fuel injector or whatever, right? Um, you don't want necessarily a persistent mechanic, right? Because the persistent mechanic is going to check the belts and then check the belts again and then check the belts again <laughs> and check the belt, and you just get a, a a high a high bill, right? You don't necessarily want a tenacious stone cutter, <laughs> okay? Because yeah. the rock's never going to break, okay? Um, so you have a balance between the two, um, and then you have fortitude. Fortitude is really just that. Fortitude is really my, <clears throat> I guess, definition of what mental toughness really is. Fortitude is the ability to kind of um, understand and move through either persistence and tenacity and make stuff happen, right? Um, so those two are buttressed by fortitude. All that combined is perseverance. Perseverance is the ability to kind of move and step through continue on people think of perseverance people think of, of grit as its own attribute but the attribute the kind of the attribute that best describes what people think grit is um is actually perseverance right and the reason why it's only one part of grit is because grit is a is actually bigger total grit is is much bigger than just pushing through um it's the ability to push through and do it again and do it again, which is why you need also adaptability and you need resilience. So that's perseverance. And then we get adaptability. Adaptability mm. is, listen, the everything in this universe changes, okay, without exception. <laughs> I mean, I don't yeah. think they've found anything that doesn't change over time, okay? Um, and so when the world and the environment- Yeah, you gotta talk real spiritual and go, God. Right. When, if you want to talk yeah, about what doesn't that's change, right. Yeah, right? Exactly. So, yeah. so uh, everything other than that, I guess. You know, yeah. but but I mean, in, in our physical world, I mean, we have to recognize that that the environment is going to change around us outside of our control, and um, it will be impossible and futile to push against it. Right. Sometimes we just have to adapt. This is the dinosaur or the frog. Right. If you don't adapt, you go extinct. Um, and so adaptation is something that we all need if we want to have overall total grit because the environment's mm -hmm. grit typically is just is expressing a, an environment of uncertainty and change and 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 um and volatility and things like that and so uh so we have to be willing to and able to adapt inside of that that's why like you know it's important to train all of these specific specific fears 
but it's important to find new ones. Like if I mastered this cockroach thing, which despite the fact that I've done it enough times, yeah. I wouldn't quite say that I've mastered it. Right. And, but if I did it enough in a row, I'm sure I could actually master that thing. But that's not the point. The point is not to make me the, the great cockroach whisperer of the world, right? Well, and yeah, that's right. You and know, then you inoculate yourself. Then I'll so, inoculate so, myself, yeah. then it won't be right. a big deal. And then when it comes to something else, I'll just be just as squeamish. It does. You know? It doesn't. It doesn't. Unfortunately, transfer between contexts. <laughs> right. Know? So, but um, what yeah. does transfer is the grit is to the push process. myself through. Is the process. Exactly. Right. So yeah, it's 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 really it's really uh, incumbent on us to practice the process versus repeat the environment. Um, yeah. Uh, so that we're better prepared because that's really what moving through uncertainty is. So you have adaptability, and then finally, you have resilience. Resilience is absolutely necessary for grit because because grit involves the ability to kind of keep doing it you know that's true grit is keep doing it. if you're not if you're not if you get hit and you and you're done right that's not grit you know grit involves the ability to kind of bounce back as well and so resilience is that hey i get knocked off baseline can i bounce back to baseline um either direction right because because really what what true grit and overall drive requires is that we keep pushing through and not get um not get sidelined by the lows and the challenges but also not get seduced by the highs right mm -hmm. you know sometimes those those small wins they're great in terms of getting us a little bit more of a of a biochemical boost but but we can't rest on our laurels we can't stop there you know and so uh and so resilience is about the ability to kind of understand that elasticity of the process and so those four combined add up to overall grit and again grit speaks to this kind of ability to move through these acute challenges you know yeah if we, if we were to talk about long-term goal setting that we get into the drive attributes but i think those are that 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 grid is i think the most important if anybody wanted to kind of say hey i just want to focus on four those would be the, fo the four to focus on so i've spent uh <clears throat> i spent some time with some operators uh david rutherford was a yeah. is a good friend yeah. i haven't seen him in a little bit uh um doesn't mean that he's not still my friend. I right, love yeah, you, David. Yeah, yeah, if you're yeah. listening, fucking. Good thing been... about team guys is you can call like ten years later, like <laughs> yeah, and totally. pick up a conversation. Like once you yeah. develop that yeah, friendship, right. you yeah. know. And I still feel that 100. percent But as I was spending time with him, you know, one of them, we were doing all kinds of things. We went out to Marcus's Marcus Latrell's ranch, yep, and we were yep. doing some different exercises and different things. And you know, one of the things that I noticed with him that was repeated when I went out with Jesse Itzler to Poland, who obviously trained with David with Goggins, Goggins yeah, and. Yeah. It was this concept of how they prepped their mind for everything. Mm -hmm. So David or Jesse, no matter what we were doing, they would just smile and be like, "Easy day, yeah, easy day. Okay, we're climbing this frozen mountain with our no clothes on, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. sleeting, yeah, easy day, easy day." And it was this kind of positive, positive, you know, mindset that was really, really powerful to have because when you're looking at it like oh God, look at this mountain. It's so long and it's so cold, and I don't know how we're gonna do it you're setting yourself up for a greater likelihood of failure. Yeah. But that kind of just adamant attitude of like easy day, we got it's, this. Um, let's deconstruct that because yeah, I think please. it's important. I think the uh, this, uh, this speaks to kind of this idea of optimal performance versus just peak. And I think this is what, this is what SEALs certainly, the guys who can't do this don't make it through training. There's an, old, there's an adage in, in SEAL training, especially when you get to Hell Week, if you think about Friday of Hell Week on Monday, you're going to quit, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's just it's too, it's too much, right? So part of the process is what we've already talked about. I'm not, I'm not going to think about the totality of what's in front of me. I'm not going to think about the whole wood pile. I'm just going to go. I'm just going to take. I know that I can just take it chunk by chunk. So yep. when you're looking at that ice mountain or whatever, that's basically what my mind or David's mind or 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 uh, Dave's mind is saying. Um, 
uh, I'm just whatever. We're just mm-hmm. I, I will I will move through this the way I need to move through this. But there's yeah. another concept that's interesting that I I talk about and explore in the book and this idea of optimal performance versus peak. You know, because everybody kind of is chasing peak and wants peak, and peak's kind of like the 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 coup de gras of every of all, all performance. But but peak is all all peak is is an apex, and it's an apex from which we can only come down. Okay, and uh, and oftentimes peak has to be uh, trained for and prepared for and scheduled. Right, yep. the pro football player schedules and prepares and plans his entire week so that he may peak for three hours on Sunday. Okay, so there's nothing wrong with peak, but it's 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 kind of incremental and it's conditional. Um, optimal performance is different. Optimal performance is really what seals are. Optimal performance says. I'm going to do the very best I can in the moment, whatever the best looks like in the moment. Okay. Sometimes the best looks like peak. I'm clicking the flow states. It's cool, right? Sometimes the best is I am head down, just going step by step, nugging it out. And it's dirty and it's ugly and it's it sucks, but I'm still moving, right? And so optimal performance allows us to, to A, pat ourselves on the back when we are just nugging it out, when it doesn't, when everything feels like just shitty. Um, we're still moving, right? And I always joke, like, like there's so many operations we've been on. It's like we do and we accomplish the mission, and then we finish and we look at it. It's like, boy, that was ugly. <laughs> you know, I mean, mm-hmm. it's just never pretty. You know, it just there's always gonna be times where you're just nugging it out. Um, but we're still performing. We're still we're still accomplishing the objective. The other thing it allows you to do is modulate your your energy levels, right? I was training with a uh, a a guy, a buddy of mine, about a year ago. He he's trained a bunch of seals. Uh, and I was part of this four-week program where he and I were training together, and he was making me push these sleds, you know, the weighted sleds, 50 yards or whatever. And uh, he was timing me. And I said, I said, hey, what are you timing? And he said, well, I'm, I'm basically timing. I'm seeing, I'm timing and looking at your aerobic versus anaerobic cap- capacity. Um, and I said, what are you finding I do? And he said, I, when you start your push, you start at the very same pace that you finish, right? You, you basically, you're, you're, you're the same speed the whole way through. So it's not a lot of anaerobic. It's mostly aerobic, right? Um, I said, what do you do? He's like, I, I explode out usually, and then I slow. I just get slower as I get to the, get the mm-hmm. finish line. I said, what do you find most SEALs do? He's like, well, well, most SEALs do it like you do it. And it, it made me think. It's like, this is exactly how SEALs think about almost every challenge that we face, right? We think aerobically, okay? We never, ever enter in like at full tilt if we don't have to. Now, if you have to, I mean, we're constantly gauging. So if you have to enter in at full sure. tilt, you do. But we never know when the end's going to happen, right? You never know. And, and, you know, if you think about the end, you're screwed, right? So so we always approach everything aerobically. And then we we go anaerobic when we have to. But then we pull back immediately and go aerobic because we need to be able to go a day, two days, five days. You know, you don't know when the mission's going to be over. You don't know what's going to be expected. You don't know what necessarily the next ridgeline looks like um and so i think i think when we when we so first of all i think that's how that's what you're seeing when you see someone say easy day that all of that all of everything i just said Mm -hmm. is all what easy day means (laughs) in the mind of a seal right um but uh but i think when we think about life and we think about you know the uncertainty of life we can't predict necessarily we should probably be thinking about optimal performance versus just peak i don't need to be peaking when I'm driving to the grocery store. You know, I can be, I can be modulating myself. I can be resting a little bit. Uh, I can be falling asleep in the back of my mini sub because I'm just, I'm just collecting my energy, you know, so that when I, when it's time to get out and actually do something, 
I have some energy left, you know? Um, and this takes a real mind state. It takes a mind state of, of understanding, okay, now's the time to be calm. I have micro moments inside of which I can recover and charge my battery, you know, even though it doesn't feel like I should be recovering and charging my battery. I used to, guys, we used to be going on missions and we'd, we'd be in the helicopter. I was the officer in charge. So I always had to be linked in, in comms with the helo pilots and then looking at the nap plan. So I was always engaged as we were flying. But I had guys who were like listening to their iPods, falling asleep, you know, you know, you know, dipping, whatever, just, mm -hmm. you know, just completely like completely 100% relaxed. And I used to look at them and I was like, this is so perfect. It's so beautiful because, because these guys are completely performing optimally right now. You know, you'd think you're on the helicopter and you're like, okay, charge up, fired up. And I'm sure that, you know, the movies, I don't watch many SEAL movies, but they're like, okay, everybody. It feels like really tense. Guys are sleeping on the way in. You know, until we have to get out and they have to click it on. And now they're going to perform, you know, now they're going to, and, and then depending on what we're doing, remember now we're walking, you know, to the, to the, so now you're just, you're, you're upping your energy and, and pulling back. And even me, you know, I, I'd be kind of really engaged as I was in the helicopter because I was talking to the pilots. Well, as soon as I hit the deck, now my recce guys, they, they're leading us out, right? So, so my, my energy levels, I can, I can pull back a little bit because they have it. They got it. I'm still aware, but I'm modulating, you know, and so. So this type of, I think, proactive modulation and optimizing of performance is in fact, I think, the best way to Yeah, reducing it. adrenaline load, reducing the yeah. amount of energy that you're burning. When your brain is active like that, people underestimate how much energy the brain is burning. Oh my gosh, yeah. And how much that'll yeah. work. I remember when I was, you know, I've been into MMA a long time. I've trained myself, but yeah. I had a lot of fighter friends. and some of the fighters who were you know amateurs and working their way up they would create an amateur coaches and yep. they would really kind of create this environment in the locker room that was all intense all yeah. the time it was like come on yeah all the, for like hours before and the performance was far from peak yeah and when they actually got out there because they were burned and then as i saw like champions you yeah know, like real champions and i got to be in the locker room with them as they were preparing and wrapping their hands all the coaches everybody around them geared everything towards humor yeah. and relaxation like yeah. how much pressure can we take off right you know can we right. tell a you know funny story and laugh a little bit and then right before you know when it was time it was like it's go time but it's not an ounce more intensity uh, yes. than necessary yeah you know knowing that when you're in there and you're about to fight somebody you're not going to be like too relaxed that's right <laughs> you know, that's yeah. not going to happen not at all not at you all know? Yeah. so the more relaxation you can bring in the more energy energetic reserves you'll have yeah. for when you need to turn yes. it on i love mma as an example uh because it's one sport I, you know sport holistically i think often provides boundaries and rules and things that that are often conditional and there's a lot of certainty in there uh but i think mma and, and a lot of really combat sports um uh are the anomaly and i don't really i'm not in, i don't do any do much of it at all um but just looking at it and having a bunch of friends in it um the fighter has to a modulate you know prior to because there's gonna be a lot of energy that's needed in the ring right but even during the fight all of the grit attributes are exercised during an mma contest right there's courage right because you mm -hmm. know hell you're gonna be trading blows with a with someone who's gonna really hurt you if they hit you, right? So there's courage that has to be executed. There's perseverance, right? Because in the mix, you're gonna to have to be tenacious or sometimes you have to be tenacious. Something's working, you have to switch. Sometimes you just have to be persistent. I'm just gonna do this because I know it's gonna work, right? And there's fortitude in there. There's adaptability because you don't know, you can go in with a plan. I'm gonna do move A, move B, move C, but you don't know what the other guy's gonna do, right? Sure. So you're gonna to have to be adaptable and you have to find places to be resilient. There are gonna be, be times inside of that match where you're gonna have to really actualize recovery as best you can, charge your battery, and then times you're gonna have to explode. So you're, you're constantly kind of 
moving in between aerobic and anaerobic. So, so people have asked me, hey, do you think there's any sports that are the best in terms of this stuff? And I think, I think fighting is a sport that is probably the best at exercising these grid attributes because you have it all there. I mean, all of it is necessary, all of it's required. Yeah. So it's a great, I think it's a great example. You can see it in, it's not just in MMA, I've seen it in jujitsu yes. all the time, like yeah. the, the black belts. Man, they, they look like they're half asleep yeah. when they can rest, when they're on the bottom and they're not doing anything. Yes. Yeah. They're just sometimes eyes closed, sometimes just feeling just like relax. And then when they need to burst, they yeah. burst. And yeah. other times they relax. Whereas when you're a white belt and just trying to figure stuff out and just getting in there and you're nervous, you're wasting so much energy yes. thrashing around. And then a lot of times you lose just out of pure exhaustion. Yeah. You know, right. and, and well, and I, I would imagine that the 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 masters of this sometimes just let their opponents exhaust themselves if they understand. I mean, it's a, it's it's a fascinating um, it's a fascinating environment. Um, my boys, I, I I probably here soon get my boys and I into it a little bit more because I didn't do a lot of it, but I think it's a it's cool, right? But b there's just so much mental uh, training that's going on and life training that can go on in that environment because you're dealing with other human beings and, and other human beings are inherently unpredictable yeah. regardless of whether you're in jujitsu or mma or whatever it is it is an unpredictable relationship right so uh so there's uncertainty automatically thrown in the mix yeah that's cool and i see it the same you know i'm i've gotten into kendo mm -hmm. recently and you can see over yeah, there i have yeah, I some, of, this, some yeah. of the gear and you know so I, the way that i do it is a, a lot of times the full gear setup that they use first of all i can't hardly find sizes that fit me because it's uh <laughs> it's a japanese sport yeah, and yeah. The, the sizes just don't tend to work out i haven't figured that out yet but ultimately i like the way that i do it with hockey helmets which are really you know safe helmets yep. and then you have the bamboo shinai and then we have hockey gloves so the hands are protected the face and head are protected but a lot of times the body will just go with no shirt or go with a t-shirt so when you get slapped with the bamboo it stings yeah. but it's also combat at the same time you know you're moving your sword and working on different strikes and i'll see the same thing yeah. i'll see the people who i'm training they could be top athletes or different people but they'll come in tense yes. they'll be holding the sword hard yeah and then they'll be not not managing their breath and yeah. you know when someone's good and what i've learned through my own practice of initially being all tense i just stay relaxed so yeah. as the match goes longer you know i have tons of energy at the end and even when i'm with somebody who's really really good like really has you know good intuition about strategy oftentimes if i'm more relaxed i'll catch up on my score you know later on yeah you know, like it's all yeah. right like all right i see you're super fast and you're super intense and like yeah you know like but are you managing? Like, are you calibrating yourself? Interesting enough, then that, the other thing that happens, and so, you know, one of my good friends, we've done a work together, mutual friend, Andrew Huberman, um, mm -hmm. and we talk about this quite a bit, but, uh, but you know, and I'm kind of a neuroscience geek, so I love kind of diving into this. Um, we talk about open gaze as a, um, as a uh, means by which you can actually shift from sympathetic into a parasympathetic system, right? You're kind of, it begins to, it begins to bring down your anxiety and begins to relax you a little bit. Uh, but one of the things he told me uh, is that when we're in open gaze, in fact, our reaction time is faster, right? So, Absolutely. so uh, and you can, anybody who wants to try this out, they don't have to get in the ring to do it, right? Well, first of all, when you're running or riding your bike and that fly hits you in the eye and you blink, right? You're like, oh my gosh, I'm so lucky I blinked. But that wasn't, that was your, that was your body seeing it, your unconscious seeing it before you did, right? Because you're in open gaze, but, but a, a good way to kind of kind of test how this works is you could if you're at a stoplight right and um if you focus on that red light and you say i'm gonna i'm gonna hit the accelerator as soon as it turn green turns green and you do that and then try to next time 
just have the red the red light in your periphery, open gaze, you just have it in your periphery. Mm. You will actually hit that accelerator faster when it turns green than when it turns red because we're because we're taking that focus off, we're going open gaze. So I think when you're talking about fighting, I think those those masters understand this, whether whether kind of innately or intuitively, or they understand or the neurology, right? You learn it. You know, yeah. hey, if I go, if I'm the more relaxed I am, the more I have awareness of my periphery in this open gaze, in fact, I'm actually my reaction time is faster. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, speaking of speed, there's something that I've heard repeated that they give credit to the SEAL teams for. Mm -hmm. And it's a saying that uh, slow is smooth, smooth is fast. Yeah. Is that something that you guys, does that actually come from the, from the teams? That is, it does. It does. And so, and part of this speaks to this idea that, um, that if you, it, it just skills training, basically. I mean, it, so part of it's the, the skills training of it, right? Um, if you if you take your skills as you're as you're learning these new skills, usually we talk about this in the in the close quarter combat environment, which is or ammo loading or something yeah, or like ammo loading anything. But just take close quarter combat, which is really the art and act of uh, of moving through a building and clearing it. Whether you're going to find the bad guy or rescue hostages, it's a very dynamic, uh, uh, ever changing, fast paced environment that has uh, lethal consequences because you're you're training how to shoot fast and and hit the bad guy, not the good guy. Um, there's the, the, the techniques and the skills that you need to start to, to, to do that, right? You basically encourage people to start slow, okay? You, you just take it slow because if you start slow, you begin to uh, absorb those skills a lot more kind of viscerally, right? Mm -hmm. uh, versus try to rush through everything, you know? Um, and so if you, if you slow down, if you go open gaze, if you kind of just take in your environment, you actually tend to move faster. And I think this speaks to that speed, but that is absolutely an adage is, Hey, slow it down because even if you're slowing it down, like, you know, people, people, I've thought about this before and we used to talk about this, you know, the whole, um, back in the old West when they used to do the gunfights, you know, mm -hmm. you know, and if you, if, if I ever had to do a gunfight, right. I would just basically focus only on just pulling my pistol and pointing and shooting. And that might, that act might be way slower than someone else across from me. But the faster I try to do that without obviously being trained, uh, the more likely I'm going to just get out there and pull the trigger and miss, right? And, 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 uh, and pull it will go elsewhere. Yeah. But it's that, it's that, it's that kind of understanding the, the, the movements and just making sure the movements are tight and, um, and doing it that way over and over again. And then, and speed comes because guys, I mean, guys will become really super fast at this, but the training is always, you know, slow first, you know, I'm going to make sure that I'm, I'm coming out of my holster the, the way I want to come out of my holster. I'm, I'm, as I'm putting my pistol and my pistol is always lowering in the same place at eye level. So my eyes always down the scope, even if you're with a rifle and that act, those movements are things that you practice, um, slow first. And then as you just continue to do it, it gets faster and faster. Yeah, and faster. let the speed become yeah. a natural consequence. That's right. I also heard someone else express uh, another adage that I really liked, which is uh, it's far too urgent to hurry, you know, <laughs> which was something else that I was like, oh, yeah. that makes a lot of sense. Because hurrying, you make a lot of mistakes. Yeah. You get yeah. sloppy. You, you know, you leave a lot that's, yeah. that's open. And, and you think like, oh, this is urgent. I got to rush it. But right. in the rushing of it, you end up, oftentimes failing the objective yeah oh totally I, i've not i have not heard that I, I do like it though and i would imagine you know it has to do with this idea that rush and hurry in implicates some sort of uh 
uh, fear or stress. You know, yeah, honestly, sure. when we're hurried or rushed, there's stress and anxiety involved, right? Versus urgency doesn't necessarily have to involve anxiety and stress if you just kind of move through it, uh, you know, paced, right? Again, yeah, aerobically versus anaerobically. Go aerobic, uh, go anaerobic when you need to. But if you approach everything aerobically first, you're paced, right? And and then you then you get this idea of when exactly you need to be anaerobic. Okay, I need to explode here, and I need to explode here. You know, other than that, I can I can pace myself. But yeah, I, I do like the saying. So. Yeah. Do you have a? Uh, we started with uh, some stories that went into training, mm-hmm. and do you have a story from combat that you're allowed to tell mm-hmm. that really exemplifies any of these different categories that you can uh, kind of anchor to some of your own? It's experience a, it's a great question i i um i don't I, I i don't think about you know war stories very often but i i would say let's see if i um there was a uh and I'll, let me i'm just gonna my my pace just indicates my working through how to tell it in a <laughs> on class way right so yeah. um we were uh uh, we, okay, we had we, we had a target, and we were. This was actually a, uh, an operation we were going to go out on with the guys who were coming in to replace us. So we, it was kind of our last op. These guys were going to come out, and and it was their first op. But we sometimes did that a because it was cool just to work with our our buddies who were in the other team, mm-hmm. um, and b it was just said, hey, just let's just show you the ropes a little bit, show you how everything moves. Not that they hadn't been there before, but it was just that. So there's one of these ops we we're going to go out and do kind of this joint thing together, um, and. Uh, the particular place we were looking at um, was uh, kind of an isolated uh, uh, compound building that uh, seemed fairly um, reasonable in terms of in terms of being able to take it down. But there was a field just north of it, and I say north; it was adjacent, but north um, that was large, kind of corn, uh, whatever. I can't remember the crop, but I'd say corn, some kind grass of high, fields, high yeah. vegetation, yeah, high vegetation. Um, and while we were looking at it, we could see that there were guys, there were, there was, there were signatures in there and, and just based on what we could see, um, we knew that they weren't, they, they were armed, you know? And so visually, or did you guys have some technology that it was a little bit of both, a little bit of both. Right. So, uh, so, but we had that, we had that Intel and it was, it was good enough that we could, we could make that assumption. So, um, and so we, we basically wanted to, we wanted to design a plan where we could allow some time and space to see if they could if they maybe filter away or whatever uh which starts to go into the the kind of the aerobic mindset let's let's not let's not rush out this but let's not rush out the door um but let's also start to look at this in a way that we might be able to uh to address it regardless of what happens you know um and so we got together a couple different plans there was a simple you know kind of the straightforward plan we we'd go and we we take down the building and we do that um, but what if they still there? We don't want to necessarily take down that you know building and have them kind of ambush us. Uh, and so we we began to generate a plan that we could then adapt on the fly. And and one of the things we kind of talked about is like, okay, if we if we find that they're they're not moving, they're still there as we get there. We're just going to basically adjust. And what we'll do is we'll basically set up a a, a scenario where we can kind of get at them before we ever attack the building. Um, mm-hmm. And we want to basically want to see what their intentions are, okay? Because we don't want to necessarily just, you know, you know, people think, you know, well, we're just shooters or killers. We, we don't want to necessarily just fire into this. Your objective was to clear object- the building. Uh, clear the building, and if we can, get, you know, get, get, get prisoners so we can get some intelligence back, right? right. So 
So it's never it's never kill capture. It's always capture kill. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. So um, so we thought about maybe how we could do this. And so what we as so as we kind of moved in, you know, kind of got closer, we realized okay, they weren't moving. Uh, didn't really know their intentions. It seemed like they were armed. And um, and so we said okay, let's do this. We're going to set up a set up a an ambush on this thing. And I'll basically create a distraction, you know, to see what they do. And in this case, I was going to basically just bring a helicopter in, you know, mm-hmm. kind of close, which is weird because we were kind of, the whole point was to walk in and we always wanted to maintain the element of surprise so, so that people didn't know we're coming. But the idea would be if, if people hear an American helicopter, then if they're good, then they're going to have a, an entirely different set of actions than if they're bad, <laughs> right? Uh, right, right. Uh, and these are actions we can now observe if we put ourselves in the right positions. Um, and so, uh, so that's what we did. So we 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 set up this thing, and and I brought in this this helicopter uh, to a safe distance, but enough so that it was it was apparent that you know. And sure enough, these guys you know grabbed their guns and you know started moving out to try to you know do something, mm-hmm. <laughs> and we were able to affect that you know pretty rapidly, which was good. Um, and then of course, once we did that affect the target and in fact, got the person we were looking for, that was, so that was good too. Um, but it was an example of kind of having to adjust on the fly, not get, not get, first of all, we didn't say, we, we didn't say no to the op, right. Just because we had this contingency that, that didn't, that looked dangerous. Sure. Um, can we make some plans that we can then adapt around or move and flux to, do we have contingencies involved so that, you know, we if things aren't going the way they need to go, can we can we call it off, right? And if this is a good point, actually, that that should be said, you know, because I just I just finishing writing up a, a a paper on this idea of quitting versus giving up, okay? Because mm-hmm. because the, the 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 belief is that seals especially is like, hey, never, you know, I'd rather die than quit, right? Which is a it's an incorrect and actually ludicrous thing way to think, right? Um, I've had I've done I've done hundreds of combat missions. And I've quit on three of them. And when I say quit, I've been in charge. That means I've I've stopped the mission and we've turned around and gone back to base. Um, and the idea is you are consistently reading the environment and in your head ticking off those things that aren't going right. Okay. Because every single time something goes wrong, and this is a military mission, you can you can, you know, see it in the aviation after afternoon reports, after aviation disasters, it's almost always a series of small things that add up to the big thing, right? Yeah. And so, so one of the things we do, and especially I, one of my jobs <laughs> as the officer in charge was to constantly keep track of those little things, you know. And I always had a ticker going on in my head. I was like, okay, that, that, that. And there's no magic number for when when it goes over, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. It's more of a kind of a feeling. Um, but like in, on those three occasions. I hit that feeling. I hit that that boundary. I said, "Okay, enough. You know, we are we are quitting." And, I, and people say we have tactically withdraw, or you know, we're going back to base. But you know, when you when you stop that, it feels like quitting. And some of the guys were not happy, <laughs> you know, because they they weren't they didn't they didn't see it like I did, you know. Um, but it's a good point. It's like even when we're operating aerobically, even in in life, right? Um, I would maintain that the the ability to succeed in any goal is in fact not about not quitting it's in fact quitting when you need to so that you never have to give up right if you're on the if you're on the wrong path you need to quit that path and try a new path right it's kind of that tenacity yeah so and i think one it seems to me that in my own experience which is not the consequences aren't nearly as high but if i haven't premeditated the potential scenarios i'm far more likely to make a mistake 
you know there is obviously the the radically unknown right i'm far more likely to make a mistake where i just i haven't thought it through right and so right and i can think about it in improv theater you yes. know i had a, a massive wardrobe malfunction as i was playing the captain of the guards and my fucking sword belt fell off and i was like oh this is opening night and i was like ah yeah you know like what do i do in that but it I hadn't been in enough plays to know like, okay, one of the things that could happen is that your wardrobe right, could malfunction right. or this could. So I just like panicked in that yeah. moment on stage. Right, you know? right. And I, I regretted that moment forever. But ultimately like this idea, and it's happened recently, this thing happens, it's a surprise. You make a, you know, you do something, there's something happens that's out of the ordinary. Like if you've thought through it, then you know that kind of track. Because yeah. as, the, as the pressure of the moment is there, big audience or people watching, the stakes are high. It seems like for you, as you go to this mission, you got to think through all of the possibilities to the greatest degree that you can. You can, but you can never think through all of them, and you you never want to suffer from paralysis or yeah, paralysis through analysis, right? So you yeah. you typically think through a few contingencies and in lump each, them into kind of categories in each of phase, right? Things, so you right? Have, you phase out operations, right? There's the there's the part where you're flying in the helo, then there's the part where you might be walking in, then there's the part where you're actually doing the target, then there's the part where you're coming off, right? So you, you phase it out. And then in each phase you say, okay, what are some things that could happen in, in these phases? And those contingencies you you think through enough so that, especially if you're doing op after op after op, it, it, begin, it, it becomes kind of yeah. like parachute malfunction. And that's also experience, right? It, yes, like what I'm talking yeah. about, even I didn't really have a great chance to think through it because that was my first improv play and the yeah. first time I wore a sword belt in an acting thing, right? Yeah. But you would be damn sure that if i was in another play where i had a sword belt i'd be like yeah this this fucking thing yeah. you know that they rigged up here this yeah. could fail that's right but you know, i think so it also know. this speaks to what we've been talking about is 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 practicing grit right prepares you for the unknown right so so it prepares you for those moments where something happens that you never anticipated and what you've practiced doing is thinking through that in the moment right and again you can't think through that in the moment if you're panicking you know and so right. i think i think one of the one of the things that seals do and any special operations do very well is we we understand uncertainty we don't panic in uncertainty right it's funny i you know i joke my in my neighborhood where i live i have a seal that lives across the street from me i have a seal that lives to the right i have a seal that lives to the left right so we that neighborhood no wonder you love your house so much <laughs> that's right totally well it's funny my wife at one point said she said you know i'm so glad these guys are in the neighborhood because if anything ever happened, I could go to any one of them, and you weren't around, right? I could go to any one of them, and they would act just like you act. Mm. And I said, well, what does that mean? Explain that. She said, they would basically, as soon as something happens that's bad or out of the ordinary, you guys all immediately calm down. You mm. all calm down, and you begin to work the problem, right? You, you think, right? And so we've, we've trained ourselves to, when the situation starts to get really bad, we calm down, right? Um, and when you calm down, you can actually think, you can make logical decisions, right? And that's even, and I think you can do this in any context, in any environment. I think those people, those actors and actresses who are very experienced, something like that happens, they see it as an opportunity. Like, yeah, oh, totally. I can make a joke now. Yeah, totally. That's cool, exactly. right? Yeah, so, exactly. Um, and I thought about a million of those. Yeah, like, afterwards, afterwards, right? Yeah, right? yeah. So, but I would have been like, you know, listen, I as, as calm as I am in many situations, I probably would have been the same as you because I'm mm -hmm. just not used to that context, you know? Sure. So, so I think these types of things that we've talked about, one can practice, prepares you for those moments where, gosh, that did not go. This is something I did not anticipate. Now I have to think on my feet, you know? Um, so you almost rely on the process rather than the specifics you, of you the- absolutely rely on the process. And I think, I think masters of uncertainty are literally, that means you're masters of the process.
Uh-huh. That's what it is. You're masters of that, of your ability to be able to think through. Um, now you buy down that uncertainty with preparation and with contingency planning, you know, as much as you possibly can. Uh, this is the, you know, when you parachute, there's like at least, you know, 10 different parachute malfunctions that can happen, right? So you, so you, mm-hmm. you understand and you practice all of them, you know, you just understand all of them and you say, okay, if this happens, this happens. But then there's going to be those that, you know, that might happen that you never planned and you say, okay, now what do I do? And you have to be able to kind of work that problem, you know? So, so yeah, it's, it's grit training. It's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. If you were, uh, as we wrap this, uh, as we wrap this up here, if you were going to say anything else outside of the scope of what we mes- mentioned so far, that would be really helpful just for someone tuning in, listening to this, something that they could apply to their life that you found meaningful when you've been speaking and coaching and, yeah. uh, and talking to people, what would that be? Um, I'll, uh, so I'll give you two. First is uh, this idea of asking better questions. You know, again, we are we're neurologically designed to answer questions. That's what our brains do about our environment constantly, right? And a lot of times it's, it's done without us even knowing it. We're, we're bouncing what we see off of, our, off of our occipital lobe and going to that categories or that library and saying, have I seen this before? Um, what people don't realize is that whenever you consciously lodge a question into your frontal lobe, our brain has no no choice but to begin to answer that question, right? That hmm. We just start coming up with answers. Now, oftentimes we do this and we do this the wrong way. We say things like, why am I so bad at this? Why does this always happen to me? Why are these people out to get me, right? As soon as you ask yourself that question, you will begin to get answers to that question, right? And and I guarantee you they won't be very empowering <laughs> or helpful. And a lot of them will be assumptions and suppositions and all that stuff, right? Yeah. Um, every single high-performing person I've ever met, every single high-performing team I've ever experienced, all understand the the the... the the uh, the power of of asking better questions, changing those questions to a better one. Right? What can I learn here? What can be done? Um, who's out there that can help me? Right? Because as soon as you lodge your question, that question into your brain, whether or not you know answers, your brain's going to start coming up with answers. Now, some of them might not be very helpful, but if you keep on digging and asking yourself that question, you will come to some gems that allow you to to perform, or at least to move, take a step. Is, is all you need to do. And if you don't know what question to ask, because people will say, hey, what question do I ask? But that's completely entirely subjective. I can't tell people that. If you don't know what question to ask, the one question you can ask is, what's a better question right now? Mm. I remember my wife and I during COVID, we were uh, we were getting this second story put on our house during COVID. So we were, we were living with our neighbor during quarantine. Mm-hmm. And of course, we had bad days, right? And we have a German shepherd. We'd just walk around the neighborhood. We use those walks as as kind of catharsis you know yeah, and sure. um and so i remember one of these times we were walking and we the first lap we were you know we were kind of using to vent a little bit but then it was the second lap and we both said okay let's stop what's the better question we should be asking ourselves right now you know and we began to talk about it and ask and, and come up with questions that we could then ask ourselves and we we moved towards solutions and so so asking better questions is absolutely something someone can do every single day when they find themselves in a in a pit, if they're mad, if they're depressed, whatever, just take control of the questions you're asking yourself. Right? That's yeah. that's a that's a huge one. Um, the other one I'll I'll just share with you is uh, really. Let a, me let me I'll just yeah. comment on that real quickly. I I think in my experience in helping lead people through different situations, it is it's so much about just asking the right question. It's yeah. not necessarily that's probably the best thing that I can do yes. is to pose another question. That's right. So you know, somebody recently uh, having performance issues based on you know, smoking too much cannabis, right? And I'm the last person to tell anybody what different substances they should put in their own body, right? right. That's their personal choice. However, 
these these performance issues were arising and so the question wasn't well why are you doing this you know like the question was all right which is very broad and can go to a lot of self-judgment and whatever or like why can't you stop or what's wrong with you yeah, like yeah, these yeah, questions yeah. are the very simple questions yeah but the question was okay so what is what is the underlying state that you're trying to mask or you're mm-hmm. trying to escape from like what is that thing that's really painful or yeah. that what's that thing that's uncomfortable and go there like don't don't even worry about the cannabis right. like what's the thing underneath it right right it's important and like that's the that's the moment it's like oh yeah well yeah. it's this stress yeah. and this anxiety that's and and okay well where does that come from oh well it's this different change that's happened yeah. there and then all of a sudden there's like oh i see yeah. i see the whole picture i didn't do anything i just asked it's, the right question it's amazing that you should say let me just hit on this because you're obviously really good at at asking the right questions too because there's a difference in the questions we ask right there's there's what's called a closed question there's a leading question there's an open-ended question open question right closed question is a question you ask that there's only a yes or no answer to right mm-hmm. and oftentimes we do that to people because we just want to we're kind of data mining you know there's the leading question which means we're asking a question leading them down a road right so i could say a closed question would be like hey uh, you could say, Rich, did you enjoy this podcast, right? Mm-hmm. All I got is yes or no, <laughs> okay? <laughs> no, a leading question, you say, hey, Rich, um, how did you enjoy this podcast, right? You're basically assuming I did and you're leading me down that road. Um, or you could say, hey, Rich, what do you think about the podcast, right? Mm-hmm. That's an open-ended question. What open-ended questions do is it it, uh, it keeps all of that uh, availability to the person you just asked, right? Mm-hmm. That's those. If you're helping someone with this, those are the questions you should be asking, just like you did, because then that person's mind just said, "Oh, wait a second. Okay, okay. Now I'm going to be able to pull out from my mind what I have and give it to you." And then you just keep on asking open-ended questions. Um, yeah. I, you know, I believe that the quality of our lives is directly proportional to the quality of questions we ask ourselves on a consistent basis, right? I mean, if we consistently ask ourselves better questions which is also part of reframing, um, we find a better quality of life. You know, it's, yeah. a, it's an amazingly powerful and simple tool. Yeah, yeah, I love that. All right, what's number two? Number two is resilience. Uh, resilience, you know, uh, uh, one of my favorite CEOs used to say, you know, talk, talk to us about the two-minute rule, which is what uh, his grandfather taught, taught him. And basically he said, okay, if anything bad happens, all right, just take two minutes, kick the dirt, mourn, you know, swear, curse, whatever, and after 120 seconds, get back to it, get back to what you're doing, right? If anything great happens, okay, take two minutes, rest on your laurels, pat yourself on the back, mm-hmm. be king of the world, and then get back to work, you know, get back to what you're doing. And so the two-minute rule, I do not, the two-minute rule is literally just, it's just resilience practice. It's for our little tragedies, okay? I am perfectly aware and cognizant of the fact that people have things that happen to them that take a lot more than two minutes to get over. <laughs> right. I mean, and 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 grieve, we have grieve as long as you need to grieve. And we, and and we, and we have great and we have great things that happen to us that we want to celebrate for a little bit longer than two minutes. But but we can actually in those little tragedies, the the spat with the with the spouse or the flat tire or the bad day at work, right? We can practice the two minute rule. And what that does is that exercises the resiliency muscle both ways, right? Um, and the more we exercise that resiliency muscle, the better off we are when the big tragedies happen and we need more time. We understand, okay. I actually have to, I have to, I have to grieve for the amount I want to grieve, get the emotions out of it, and then get back to track. But there, there's always a sense that you know, come back to baseline as soon as possible, so you can kind of move, move forward. Beautiful man. Yeah. Um, thanks for coming. 
Thanks, thanks for having for sharing. me. This, this thanks for your service prior to that. Absolutely. Thank you. This has been great. It's been great talking to you. Great to meet yeah. you finally. So yeah, likewise. Yeah. Likewise. And uh your book, you want to tell people about that? Tell people anywhere else they can find you. Yeah. So the attributes, uh theattributes.com can find the book. Um, and you can find also we created a a free assessment tool. So you can go on the website and you can get an assessment on your grid attributes, your mental acuity attributes and your drive attributes and get a score as to where you fall on on each attribute that you can use really as a snapshot to say, okay. How do I show up? And then you can kind of index that against your performance, say which, which are the ones I want to develop. So that's all free. Uh, we also have some workbooks on there if people wanted to develop attributes, which is different than developing a skill. Uh, if they want to develop a specific attribute, a work, there's workbooks there to guide people to that. So theattributes.com and then the book is, you can get the book there, but also anywhere books are sold. So Beautiful. Yeah. Thank you so much, Rich. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Much love. Goodbye. Thanks for tuning into this podcast with Rich Davini. Hopefully you gleaned some important mindset pearls. We'll be back next week with another banger. I love you guys and I'll see you soon.